Welcome back to This Week Back Then. Today we're going to cover historical events that happened between March 14th and March 20th. On March 14th in 1592, we experienced the ultimate Pi Day. 3.14 is Pi Day. And uh, in 1592, the date was the closest to Pi you can get. The uh, date in Pi numbers would be 3.141592, which there will be no, no other date that can come that close to or have that many pi numbers in a row, I guess. I don't know. I found that kind of interesting, I guess. Also on March 14th in 1973, John McCain was rescued. John Sidney McCain III was born on August 29th, 1936. He was an American politician, statesman, United States Navy officer who served. Also, he served as a United States Senator for Arizona from 1987 until his death in 2018. Uh, before that, he served two terms in the United States House of Representatives and was the, also the Republican nominee for President of the United States in the 2008 election, which he did lose to Barack Obama. I won't go through his entire career and life. I'm just going to talk about his imprisonment and rescue or, uh, uh, during the Vietnam War. McCain requested a combat assignment and was assigned to the aircraft carrier USS Forrestal flying A-4 Skyhawks. His combat Combat duty began when he was 30 years old in mid-1967 when Forrestal was assigned to a bombing campaign, Operation Rolling Thunder, during the Vietnam War. Stationed in the Gulf of Tonkin, McCain and his fellow pilots became frustrated by micromanagement from Washington, and he later wrote, In all candor, we thought our civilian commanders were complete idiots who didn't have the least notion of what it took to win the war. And I would say that's probably usually the case. <laughs> On July 29, 1967, McCain was a lieutenant commander when he was near the center of the USS Forrestal fire. He escaped from his burning jet and was trying to help another pilot escape when a bomb exploded. McCain was struck in the legs and chest by fragments. Uh, the ensuing fire, ensuing fire killed 134 sailors and took 24 hours to control. With the Forrestal out of commission, McCain volunteered for assignment with the USS Oriskany, another aircraft carrier employed in Operation Rolling Thunder. There he was awarded the Navy Commendation Medal for the, and the Bronze Star Medal for missions flown over North Vietnam. McCain was taken prisoner of war on October 26, 1967. He was flying his 23rd bombing mission over North Vietnam when his A-4E Skyhawk was shot down by a missile over Hanoi. McCain fractured both arms and a leg when he ejected from the aircraft and nearly drowned after he parachuted into the Truk Bok Lake. Some North Vietnamese pulled him, uh, pulled him ashore, then others crushed his shoulder with a rifle butt and bayoneted him. McCain was then transported to Hanoi's main Haolo prison, nicknamed the Hanoi Hilton. Although McCain was seriously wounded and injured, his captors refused to treat him. They beat and interrogated him to get information, and he was given medical care only when the North Vietnamese discovered that his father was an admiral. His status as prisoner of war made the front pages of major American newspapers. McCain spent six weeks in the hospital where he received marginal care. He had lost 50 pounds. He was in a chest cast and his gray hair had turned white. McCain was sent to a different camp on the outskirts of Hanoi. In December 1967, McCain was placed in a cell with two other Americans who did not expect him to live more than a week. In March 1968, McCain was placed into solitary confinement where he remained for two years. 
In mid-1968, his father, John S. McCain Jr., was named commander of all U.S. forces in the Vietnam theater, and the North Vietnamese offered McCain early release because they wanted to appear merciful for propaganda purposes and also to show other POWs that elite prisoners were willing to be treated preferentially. McCain refused uh, repatriation unless every man taken in before him was also released. Such early releases Release was prohibited by the POW's interpretation of the Military Code of Conduct, which states in Article 3, I will accept neither parole nor special favors from the enemy. To prevent the enemy from using prisoners for propaganda, officers were to agree to be released in the order in which they were captured. Beginning in August of 1968, McCain was subjected to a program of severe torture. He was bound and beaten every two hours. This punishment occurred at the same time that he was suffering from heat exhaustion and dysentery. Further injuries brought McCain to the point of suicide, but his preparations were interrupted by the guards. Eventually, McCain made an anti-U.S. propaganda confession. He had always felt that that statement was dishonorable, but as he later wrote, I had learned that we all learned what we all learned over there. Every man has his breaking point. I had reached mine. Many U.S. POWs were tortured and mistreated in order to extract confessions and propaganda statements. Virtually all of them eventually yielded something to their captors. McCain received two two to three beatings weekly because of his continued refusal to sign additional statements. McCain refused to meet various anti-war groups seeking peace in Hanoi, wanting to give neither them nor the North Vietnamese a propaganda victory. From late 1969... Treatment of McCain and many of the other POWs became more tolerable, while McCain continued to resist the camp authorities. McCain and other prisoners cheered the U.S. Christmas bombing campaign on December 9, of December 1972, viewing it as a forceful measure to push North Vietnam to terms. McCain was a prisoner of war in North Vietnam for five and a half years until his release on March 14, 1973, along with 108 other prisoners of war. His wartime injuries left him permanently incapable of raising his arms above his head. After the war, McCain, accompanied by his family and his, his second wife, Cindy, returned to the site on a few occasions in efforts of trying to come to terms with what had happened to him there during his capture. Wow, what a story, huh? On July 19, 2017, he was diagnosed with brain cancer, which he fought for over a year. On August 24, 2018, his family announced that he would no longer seek treatment for the cancer, and he died the next day, four days before his 82nd birthday. So what a, what a, a true American hero John McCain was. March 15th, Julius Caesar, the Roman dictator, was assassinated by a group of senators on the Ides of March, or March 15th, of 44 BC during a a meeting of the Senate at the Theater of Pompeii in Rome. The senators stabbed Caesar 23 times. The senators claimed to be acting over fears that Caesar's unprecedented concentration of power during his dictatorship was undermining the Roman Republic and presented the deed as an act of tyrannicide. At least 60 senators were party to the conspiracy led by Marcus Brutus, Gaius Cassius, and Decimus Brutus. Don't you love their names? Uh, Despite the death of Caesar, the conspirators were unable to restore the institutions of the Republic. The ramifications of the assassination led to the Liberators' civil, civil war and ultimately the Principate period of the Roman Empire. Caesar had served the Republic for eight years in the Gallic Wars, fully conquering the region of Gaul, Uh, roughly equivalent to modern-day France. After the Roman Senate demanded Caesar to disband his army and return home as a civilian, he refused, crossing the Rubicon with his army and plunging Rome into Caesar's civil war in 49 BC. 
After defeating the last of the opposition, Caesar was appointed dictator per, 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 perpetuo, excuse me, dictator of perpetuity, perpetuity, perpetuity. <laughs> I should edit that out, but I'm not gonna. In early 44 BC, Roman, <laughs> Roman historian Titus Livius describes three incidents that occurred from 45 to 44 BC as the final causes of Caesar's assassination. The last three straws, or the three last straws, as far as some Romans were concerned. Uh, The first was when the Senate voted to formally present Caesar with a large group of honors. Uh, So they marched as a senatorial delegate to the Temple of Venus Genetrix. Proper etiquette of the time called for Caesar to rise and formally greet them when they entered. Uh, He chose not to get out of his seat and apparently also joked about the honors they were bestowing on him. So by practically rejecting the senatorial gift and not acknowledging the delegation's presence with proper etiquette, Caesar gave the strong impression that he no longer cared about the Senate. The second event was when they found a diadem, which is a wreath, on the head of a statue of Caesar in the Roman Forum. This upset the tribunes, uh, who ordered it removed as it was a symbol of Jupiter and royalty. Caesar, Caesar, Caesar thought perhaps that the tribunes had actually placed it there so that they could have the satisfaction of removing it. And the third event was when Mark Antony, who was elected co-counsel with, with Caesar, climbed onto the rostra and placed a diadem on Caesar's head, saying, the people give this to you through me. A few members of the crowd applauded, but most remained silent. Caesar removed it from his head, and Antony put it back on Caesar's head, only to get the same reaction from the crowd. Finally, Caesar put it aside and said, Jupiter alone of the Romans is king, which received an enthusiastic response from the crowd. Many people believe that Caesar only rejected the diadem as a way to see if there was enough support for him to become king, which apparently there was not. The conspirators began meeting on February 22nd, 44 B.C., And Cassius Longinus and Marcus Brutus agreed something had to be done to prevent Caesar from becoming king. These two began recruiting others, and although it only takes one one guy to plunge a dagger into someone, they decided in order for Caesar's assassination to be considered legitimate, it would need to include a large number of Rome's leading men. They discussed uh, several how, when, and where's, and then finally decided that it should be done at one of the Senate meetings. A few factors went into this decision. Um, one, only senators were allowed in the Senate House, so Caesar wouldn't have uh, any of his bodyguards. And also, uh, they felt that the murder of a tyrant in full view of the Senate would not be seen as a political plot, but as a noble act done on behalf of their country. Caesar would be uh, leaving the city on, 18, on March 18th to embark on a military campaign against the Getae and the Parthians. Uh, the last Senate meeting before the date, that date was on the 15th, the Ides of March. And so the conspirators chose this as the day of the assassination. In the days leading up to the Ides, Caesar was not completely oblivious to what was being planned. According to the ancient historian Plutarch, uh, a, seer ha- a seer had warned Caesar that his life would be in danger no later than the Ides of March. The Roman biographer Suetonius identifies the seer as, her- as a Harrisbux named Spurina. In addition, on March, on March 1st, Caesar watched Cassius speaking with Brutus at the Senate House and said to an aide, What do you think Cassius is up to? I don't like him. He looks pale. Two days before the assassination, Cassius met with the conspirators and told them that should anyone discover the plan, they were to turn their knives on themselves. 
On the Ides of March of 44 BC, a day used by the Romans as a deadline for settling debts, conspirators and non-conspirators met at the Senate House of Pompeii, located in the Theater of Pompeii, for the Senate meeting. Usually the senators would be meeting at the Roman Forum, but Caesar was financing a reconstruction of the Forum, and so the senators met in other venues throughout Rome, this being one of them. There were gladiatorial games underway at the theater, and Decimus Brutus, who owned a company of gladiators, stationed them in the portico of Pompeii, also located in the theater of Pompeii. The gladiators could be useful to the conspirators. If a fight broke out to protect Caesar, the gladiators could intervene. If Caesar was killed but the conspirators became under attack, the gladiators could protect them. And since it was impossible to enter the Senate House without going through the portico, the gladiators could block entrance to both if necessary. The senators waited on Caesar's arrival, but it did not come. The reason for this is that early that morning, Calpurnia, Caesar's wife, was awoken from a nightmare. She had dreamt that she was holding a murdered Caesar in her arms and mourning him. Calpurnia had no doubt heard Spurina's warnings of great peril to Caesar's life, which helps explain her visions, I guess. Around 5 a.m., Calpurnia begged Caesar not to go to the Senate meeting that day. After some hesitation, uh, Caesar acquiesced. Although not superstitious, he knew that Spurina and Calpurnia were involved in Roman politics and decided to be cautious. Caesar sent Mark Antony to dismiss the Senate. When the conspirators heard of this dismissal, Decimus went to Caesar's home to try to talk him into coming to the Senate meeting. What do you say, Caesar? Decimus said. Will some, someone of your stature pay attention to a woman's dreams and the omens of, a, of foolish men? So Caesar eventually decided to go. Caesar was walking to the Senate house when he caught sight of Spurina. Well, the Ides of March have come, Caesar called out playfully. Aye, the Ides have come, said Spurina, but they are not yet gone. Mark Antony started to enter the started to enter with Caesar, but was intercepted by one of the plotters and detained outside. He remained there until after the assassination, at which point he fled. According to Plutarch, as Caesar took his seat, Lucius Tilius Clymer, Chimer, Kimber, Simber, I'm not sure, <laughs> presented him with a petition to recall his exiled brother. The other conspirators crowded round to offer their support. Both Plutarch and Suetonius say that Caesar waved him away, but Kimber grabbed Caesar's shoulders and pulled down Caesar's toga. Caesar then cried to Simber, Kimber, why, this is violence. At the, at the same time, Casca produced his dagger and made a glancing thrust at the dictator's neck. Caesar turned uh, around quickly and caught Casca by the arm. Uh, according to Plutarch, he said in Latin, Casca, you villain, what are you doing? Of course he said it in Latin. That's all they spoke. He said, Casca, you villain, what, what are you doing? Casca, frightened, shouted, help, brother. Within moments, the entire group, including Brutus, were stabbing the dictator. Caesar attempted to get away, but blinded by blood in his eyes, he tripped and fell. The men continued stabbing him as he lay defenseless on the lower steps of the portico. Caesar was stabbed 23 times. Suetonius relates that a physician who performed an autopsy on Caesar established that only one wound, the second one to his chest that pierced his aorta, had been fatal. This autopsy report, the earliest known postmortem report, post-mortem report in history describes that Caesar's death was mostly attributed to blood loss from his stab wounds. Well, of course it was. Didn't take a doctor to figure that out. Uh, Caesar was killed at the base of the Curia in the theater of Pompeii. The dictator's last words are a contested subject among scholars and historians. Suetonius himself says he said nothing. Nevertheless, he mentions that others have written that Caesar's last words were you too child. Um, Plutarch also reports that Caesar said nothing. 
pulling his toga over his head when he saw Brutus among the conspirators. The version best known in, Engl- in the English-speaking world is the Latin phrase, et tu, Brute, which in English is, you too, Brutus. This derives from William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, which he wrote in 1599, where it actually uh, forms the first half of a uh, macaronic line, et tu, Brute, then fall Caesar. According to Plutarch, after the assassination, Brutus stepped forward as if to say something to his fellow uh, senators not involved in the plot. They, however, fled the building. Brutus and his companions then marched through the city, announcing, People of Rome, we are once again free. They were met with silence, as the citizens of Rome had locked themselves inside their houses as soon as the rumors of what had taken place began to spread. According to Suetonius, after the murder, all the conspirators fled. Caesar's body lay untouched for some time afterwards until finally three common slaves put him on a litter and carried him home with one arm hanging down. Two days after the assassination, Mark Antony summoned the Senate and managed to work out a compromise in which the assassination would not, assassins would not be punished for their acts, but all of Caesar's appointments would remain valid. By doing this, Antony most likely hoped to avoid large cracks in government forming as a result of Caesar's death. Simultaneously, Antony dismissed, dis, diminished the goals of the conspirators. The result unforeseen by the assassins was that Caesar's death precipitated the end of the Roman Republic. So <laughs> I have to apologize for all my mispronunciations of the names. I took Latin in high school a lot of years ago, and I just remember every C, that it was a K sound, a hard C. And so I get confused when I'm reading this, and it looks like, like except for Caesar, it actually should be Kaiser, I guess. At any rate, it's neither here nor there at this point. It's over. Um, <laughs> also on March 15th in... Um, 2017, Disney refused to cut a gay scene from their remake of Beauty and the Beast after Malaysia's film censorship board said it would only be approved for release in their country if the scene was cut. Homosexual, uh, homosexual activity remains illegal in Malaysia and homosexual characters can only be depicted on screen if they show repentance or are portrayed negatively. Um, in the new version of Beauty and the Beast, the character of Lafoe, the sidekick of the story's villain Gaston, is confused about his sexuality. According to director Bill Condon, the, film's feature, the film features an exclusively gay moment where Lafoe dances with another man. The scene is already attra- had already attracted controversy. In Russia, the film was approved for release with a restrictive rating that prohibits those under age six of 16 from viewing it. The film has also been banned by a cinema <laughs> by a cinema in Alabama because of the scene. Uh, so a human beast love story is okay, but a character with a subtle romantic interest in the same sex? Get the hell out of here, you sinners. Whatever. Well, I can add Malaysia, Russia, and the Henniger Drive-In in rural northeastern Alabama to my list of places to avoid. Uh, in a Facebook post, the drive-in stated that it would not compromise on what the Bible teaches. Well, I have news for them. Nearly every single movie produced has something in it that is against what the Bible teaches. March 16th of 1850, The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne is published. That's another one of my long list of wonderful pieces of literature that we read in our high school English class. Um, the Scarlet Letter. What was her name? Hester Prynne. You adulterer. Uh, also on March 16th in 1968, General Motors produced its 100 millionth car. And in case you're wondering what 
type of vehicle it was. It was an Oldsmobile Toronado. March 17th, St. Patrick's Day. Uh, St. Patrick's Day, or the Feast of St. Patrick, is cultural and religious celebration held on March 17th, which is the traditional death date of St. Patrick in 461. It was made an official Christian feast day in the early 17th century, commemorating St. Patrick and the arrival of Christianity in Ireland. St. Patrick was a 5th century Romano-British Christian missionary and bishop in Ireland. Much of what is known about St. Patrick comes from the Declaration, which was allegedly written by Patrick himself. It is believed that he was born in Roman Britain in the 4th century into a wealthy Romano-British family. His father was a deacon and his grandfather was a priest in the Christian church. According to the Declaration, at the age of 16, he was kidnapped by Irish raiders and taken as a slave to Gaelic, Ireland. It says that he spent six years there working as a shepherd and that during this time he found God. The declaration says that God told Patrick to flee the flee to the coast where a ship would be waiting to take him home. After making his way home, Patrick went to went on to become a priest. According to, to tradition, Patrick returned to Ireland to convert the pagan Irish to Christianity. The declaration says that he spent many years evangelizing in the northern half of Ireland and converted thousands. Patrick's efforts against the Druids were eventually turned into an allegory in which he drove snakes out of Ireland, despite the fact that snakes were not known to inhabit the region. Tradition holds that he died on on March 17th and was buried at Down Patrick. Over the following centuries, many legends grew up around Patrick, and he became Ireland's foremost saint. It is, uh, that day is celebrated all over the world with parades and festivals and traditional Irish music, um, probably a few pints or a few million pints. Uh, here in Chicago, we dye the entire Chicago River green or the downtown section of it green every year for the occasion. And we have two parades. We have one downtown and the one on the south side of Chicago, which is where the south side Irish all hang out. Um, in New York, it has the largest parade in the world. And last year, uh, for the first time in 250 years, they didn't have it due to the crazy pandemic. So that is uh, St. Patrick's Day. Um, also on St. Patrick's Day, uh, my grandma was born in 1920. So she would have been 101 this year. And, um, and last year, I had a baby uh, horse. A little filly was born on uh, St. Patrick's Day as well. So St. Patrick's Day holds a special place in my heart. March 19th, 1848, Wyatt Earp was born. Wyatt Barry Stapp Earp was born on March 19th, 1848. He was a lawman, business owner, professional gambler, teamster, buffalo hunter, owned several saloons, ran a brothel, mined for silver and gold, and refereed boxing matches. So, uh, you know, a few... A few uh, jobs throughout the years. He spent his early life in Pella, Iowa. In 1870, he married uh, Eurilla Sutherland, who contracted typhoid fever and died during childbirth. During the next two years, Earp was arrested for stealing a horse, escaped from jail, and was sued twice. He was arrested and fined three times in 1872 for keeping and being found in a house of ill fame. His third arrest was described at length in the daily transcript, which referred to him as an old offender and nicknamed him the Peoria Bummer, another name for loafer or vagrant. By 1874, he arrived in the boom town of Wichita, Kansas, where he, uh, where his reputed wife opened a brothel. On April 21, 1875, he was appointed to the Wichita Police Force. How did he go through all that and then just become a police officer? Okay. 
Police force and developed a solid reputation as a lawman, but he was fined and was not rehired as a police officer on April 19, 1876, after getting into a physical altercation with a political opponent of his boss. Earp immediately left Wichita, following his brother James to Dodge City, Kansas, where he became an assistant city marshal. In the winter of 1878, he went to Texas to track down an outlaw, and he met John Doc Holliday, whom Earp credited with saving his life. Earp moved constantly throughout his life from one boomtown to another. He left Dodge City in 1879 and moved with brothers James and Virgil to Tombstone, where a silver boom was underway. The Earps clashed with an informal group of outlaws known as the Cowboys. Wyatt, Virgil, and younger, younger brother Morgan held various law enforcement positions, which put them in conflict with Tom McLaurie, Frank McLaurie, Ike Clanton, and Billy Clanton, who threatened to kill the Earps on several occasions. The conflict escalated over the next year, culminating in the shootout at the OK Corral on October 26, 1881, where the Earps and Doc Holliday killed three cowboys. During the next five months, Virgil was ambushed and maimed, and Morgan was assassinated. Wyatt, Warren Earp, Doc Holliday, and others formed a federal posse which killed three more cowboys, whom they thought responsible. Wyatt was never found, never wounded in any of the gunfights, unlike his brother, brothers Virgil and Morgan or his friend Doc Holliday, which only added to his mystique after his death. As a lifelong gambler, Earp was also looking for a quick way to make money. After leaving Tombstone, he went to San Francisco, where he reuni reunited with Josephine Marcus, and she became his common-law wife. They joined a gold rush in Eagle City, Idaho, where they owned mining interests and a saloon. They left to race horses and went and opened a saloon during a real estate boom in San Diego, California. Uh, back in San Francisco, Wyatt raced horses again, but his reputation suffered irrepar irreparably when he refereed uh, the Fitzsimmons versus Sharkey boxing match and called a foul, which led to led many to believe that he fixed the fight. Um, they moved briefly to Yuma, Arizona, before joining the Nome Gold Rush in 1899. He and Charlie Hoxie paid $1,500, which is about forty-six grand today, I guess, for a liquor license to open a two-story saloon called the Dexter and made an estimated $80,000, which is about $2.5 million today. The couple left Arizona and opened another saloon in Tonopah, Nevada, the site of a new gold find. Around 1911, Earp began working several mining claims in Vidal, California, retiring in the hot summers with Josephine to Los Angeles. He made friends among early Western actors in Hollywood and tried to get his story told, but he was portrayed only very briefly in one film produced during his lifetime, Wild Bill Hickok, in 1923. Earp was a last-minute choice as a referee for a boxing match on December 2, 1896, which the promoters billed as the heavyweight championship of the world when Bob Fitzsimmons was set to fight Tom Sharkey at the, Merch at the Mechanics Pavilion in San Francisco. Earp had refereed 30 or so matches in earlier days, uh, though not under the Marquis of Queensbury rules, but under the older and more liberal London Prize ring rules. The fight may have been the most anticipated fight on American soil that year. Fitzsimmons was favored to win, and the public and even civic officials placed bets on the outcome. Fitzsimmons dominated Sharkey throughout the fight, and he hit Sharkey with his famed solar plexus punch in the eighth round, an uppercut under the heart that could render a man temporarily helpless. Then, at Fitzsimmons' next punch, Sharkey dropped, clutched his groin, and rolled on the canvas, screaming, Foul. Earp stopped the bout, ruling that Fitzsimmons had hit Sharkey below the belt, but virtually no one witnessed the punch. Earp, was, Earp awarded the fight to Sharkey, whom attendants carried out as, 
uh, as limp as a rag. The 15,000 fans in attendance greeted his decision with loud boos and catcalls. It was widely believed that no foul had occurred and that Earp had bet on Sharky. Several doctors verified afterward that Sharky had been hit below the belt, but the public had not had had bet heavily on Fitzsimmons and they were livid at the outcome. Fitzsimmons went to court to overturn Earp's decision and newspaper accounts and testimony over the next two weeks revealed a conspiracy among the boxing promoters to fix the fight's outcome. Newspapers across the United States republished the stories from the San Francisco papers and looked for local angles. On December 14, 1896, the San Francisco Call quoted a story from the New York Journal by Alfred H. Lewis, who accused the Earp brothers of being stage robbers, and Earp was parodied in editorial characters by newspapers across the country. Stories about the fight and Earp's contested decision were distributed nationwide to a public that knew little of Wyatt Earp prior to that time. On December 17th, Judge Sanderson finally ruled that prize fighting was illegal in San Francisco and the courts would not uh, determine who the winner was. Sharkey retained the purse, but the decision provided no vindication for Earp. Until the fight, Earp had been a minor figure known regularly regionally in California and Arizona. Afterward, his name was known from coast to coast. The boxing match left a smear on his public character, which followed him until he died and afterward. Eight years later, Dr. B. Brooks Lee was accused of treating Sharkey to make it appear that he had been fouled by Fitzsimmons, and Lee admitted that it was true. I fixed Sharkey up to look as if he had been fouled, he confessed. I got $1,000 for my part in the affair. Well, sounds pretty shady. Wyatt Earp was the last surviving Earp brother and the last surviving participant in the, uh, of the gunfight at the OK Corral when he died at his home in the Earp's small rented bungalow at 4004 West 17th Street in Los Angeles of chronic cystitis on, on January 13th, 1929 at the age of 80. The Los, Ange- Los Angeles Times reported that he had been ill with liver disease for three years. His brother, Newton, had died almost a month prior on December 18, 1928. Wyatt was survived by Josephine and his sister, Adelia Earp Edwards. He had no children. Uh, Charlie Walsh's daughter, Grace Spoladora, and his daughter-in-law, Alma, were the only witnesses to Wyatt's body. Wyatt's body's cremation. Uh, Josephine was apparently too grief-stricken to assist. Assist in the cremation? What? Okay. They must have done things differently in the 20s. Uh, the funeral was held at the Congregational Church on Wilshire Boulevard. Earp's pallbearers were uh, William J. Hunsaker, who was Earp's att- attorney in Tombstone and noted Los Angeles attorney. Uh, Jim Mitchell, uh, the Los Angeles examiner, reporter, and Hollywood screenwriter. George W. Parsons, founding member of Tombstone's Committee of Vigilance. Wilson Meisner, a friend of Wyatt's during the Klondike Gold Rush. John Klum, a good friend of, from his days in Tombstone, former Tombstone mayor and editor of the Tombstone Epitaph. Uh, William S. Hart, good friend of the, and Western actor and silent film star. And Tom Mix, who was a friend and also a Western film star. Mitchell wrote Wyatt's local ob- obituary. The newspapers reported that Tom Mix cried during his friend's service. Uh, when Josephine did not attend Wyatt's funeral, Grace Spoladoro was... Furious. She didn't even go to his funeral. She wasn't, she wasn't that upset. She was peculiar. I don't think she was that devastated when he died. Well, okay. Josephine, was, who was Jewish, had Earp's body cremated and secretly buried his remains in the Marcus family plot at the Hills of Eternity Memorial Park, a Jewish cemetery in Colma, California. Uh, when she died in 1944, her body was buried alongside his ashes. 
She had purchased a small white marble headstone, which was stolen shortly after her death in 1944. It was discovered in a backyard in Fresno, California. A second stone of flat granite was also stolen. Um, on July 7, 1957, grave, bro- grave robbers dug into the herb's grave in an apparent attempt to steal the urn containing his ashes. Unable to find his remains, they stole the 300-pound gravestone. Uh, actor Hugh O'Brien, who was playing Earp in the 1955-61 television series The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp, offered a reward for the stone's return. It was located for sale in a flea market. Cemetery officials reset the stone, flush and concrete, but it was stolen again. So actor Kevin Costner, who played Earp in the 1994 movie Wyatt Earp, offered to buy a new larger stone, but the Marcus family thought his offer was self-serving and declined. Descendants of Josie's half-sister Rebecca allowed a Southern California group in 1998-99 to to erect the stone currently in place. The earlier stone is on display in the Colma Historical Museum. In 1957, the Tombstone Restoration Commission looked for Wyatt's ashes with the intention of having them relocated to Tombstone. They contacted family members seeking permission and the location of his ashes, but no one could tell them where they were where they were buried, not even his closest living relative, George Earp. Arthur King, a deputy of Earp from 1910 to 1912, finally revealed that Josephine had buried Wyatt's ashes in Colma, California, and the Tombstone Commission canceled its plans to relocate them. Their gravesite is the most visited resting place in the Jewish cemetery. I mean, obviously, there's a, oh, so much more I could talk about Wyatt Earp, but I won't, I won't go through his entire life story. It's uh, quite storied and quite long, and you can watch any number of movies that, that, that depict most of the things that I said. The one thing that I did point out was the boxing matches. I did had no idea he was a, a boxing referee, especially for a prize fight of that size. But I thought that was interesting. I should have my uncle read this next event because uh, Roberto Clemente is his absolute all-time favorite baseball player. Uh, but on March 20th of 1973, Roberto Clemente was... Uh, posthumously inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. So I'll just tell you a little little bit about Roberto. Uh, Roberto Enrique Clemente Walker, uh, born August 18th, 1934, passed away December 31st, 1972, was a Puerto Rican professional baseball right fielder who played 18 seasons in Major League Baseball for the Pittsburgh Pirates, who is also my uncle's most favorite team. Um, after each, I'll be, I'll be, I'll wonder what he's going to, uh, critique about this and tell me what numbers I have wrong and, and whatever, if he listens to this after his early death, he was posthumously inducted to the national uh, baseball hall of fame in 1973, becoming both the first Caribbean and the first Latino American player to be enshrined because he died at a young age and had such a stellar career. The hall of fame changed its rules for eligibility. As an alternative to a player having be, having to be retired five years before eligibility, a player who has been deceased uh, for at least six months is eligible for entry. Clemente was an all-star for 13 seasons, playing in 15 all-star games. He was the National League Most Valuable Player in 1966, the NL batting leader in 61, 64, 65, and 67, and a Gold Glove winner for 12 consecutive seasons from 61 through 72. His batting average was over 300 for 13 seasons, and he had 3,000 hits during his major league career. He also was a two-time World Series champion. 
Clemente was the first player from the Caribbean and Latin America, in the informal sense, as Puerto Rico is affiliated with the U.S., to win a World Series as a, stand, as a starting position player, and that was in 1960. Um, also to receive a NL MVP award in 66, and to receive a World Series MVP award, award in 1971. Clemente was involved in charity work in Latin America and Caribbean countries during the off-seasons. He often delivered baseball equipment and food to those in need. On December 31st, 1972, he died in a plane crash at the age of 38 while en route to deliver aid to earthquake victims in Nicaragua. The following seasons, the Pirates retired his uniform number 21 and MLB renamed its annual Commissioner's Award in his honor. Now known as the Roberto Clemente Award, it is given to the player who best exemplifies the game of baseball, sportsmanship, community community involvement, and the individual's contribution to his team. Clemente, as I said, Clemente spent much of his time um, off-season with charity work, and and when Managua, the capital city of Nicaragua, was affected by a massive earthquake on December 23rd in 1972, Clemente, who visited Managua three weeks before the quake, immediately set to work arranging emergency relief flights. He soon learned, however, that the aid packages on the first three flights had been diverted by corrupt officials of the Somoza government, never reaching victims of the quake. He decided to accompany the fourth relief flight, hoping that his presence would ensure that the aid would be delivered to the survivors. The airplane he chartered for a New Year's Eve flight, a Douglas DC-7 cargo plane, had a history of mechanical problems and an insufficient number of flight personnel, missing both a flight engineer and co-pilot, and was overloaded by 4,200 pounds. It crashed into the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Ilsa Verde, Puerto Rico, immediately after takeoff on December 31st, 1972, due to engine failure. A few days after the crash, the body of the pilot and part of the fuselage of the plane were found. An empty flight case, apparently belonging to Clemente, was the only personal item recovered from the plane. Clemente's teammate and close friend, Manny Sanguian, was the only member of the Pirates not to attend Roberto's memorial service. The Pirates catcher chose instead to dive into the waters where Clemente's plane had crashed in an effort to find his teammate. The bodies of Clemente and three others were... Uh, who were also on the four-engine plane, were, were never recovered. Montreal Expos peach, pitcher Tom Walker, then playing winter league ball in Puerto Rico, um, in a, that league was actually later named after Clemente, helped him load the plane. Because Clemente wanted Walker, who was single, to go enjoy New Year's Eve, Clemente told him not to join him on the flight. Walker's son is a professional baseball player, Neil Walker, actually. In an interview for the ESPN documentary series Sports Century in 2002, Clemente's widow, Vera, mentioned that Clemente had told her several times that he thought he was going to die young. Indeed, while being asked by a broadcaster and future fellow Hall of Fame Richie Ashburn in July 1971 uh, during the All-Star Game activities about when he would get his 3,000th career hit, Clemente's response was, well, uh, you never know. Uh, if I'm alive, like I said before, you never know because God tells you how long you're going to be here. So you never know what can happen tomorrow. Clemente's older stepbrother, Louis, died on December 31st, 1954, and his stepsister a few years later. At the time of his death, Clemente had established several records with the Pirates, including most triples in a game, which was three. He won 12 Gold Glove Awards and shared the record of most one out most one among outfielders with, with Millie, Willie Mays. On July 25, 1956, in a 9-8 Pittsburgh win against the Chicago Cubs, Clemente hit the only walk-off inside the park Grand Slam in professional baseball history. So, 
On March 20th of 1973, the Baseball Writers Association of America held a special election uh, for the Baseball Hall of Fame. They voted to waive the waiting period for Clemente due to the circumstances of his death and posthumously elected him for induction into the Hall of Fame, give him th- giving him 393 out of 420 available votes for 92.7% of the vote. Clemente's Hall of Fame plaque originally had his name as Roberto Walker Clemente instead of the proper Spanish format, Roberto Clemente Walker. That plaque was recast in 2000 to correct the era. So that is the story of Roberto Clemente getting in the Hall of Fame. I hope I did it justice. Um, he was an amazing, uh, not just an amazing baseball player, but quite the humanitarian as well. So that wraps it up for this episode of This Week Back Then. I uh, got my information from onthisday.com, Wikipedia, The Guardian, um, History.com, Major League Baseball, and uh, Mr. Stefan, my eighth grade basketball coach. Uh, so join us next time when we cover items such as Alcatraz, tar and feathering, erupting volcano, volcanoes, and uh, a lot of other cool stuff. So thanks for joining, and we'll see you next time. Until then, be kind. Be kind.